invite you to take your Bibles, open them to the Gospel of Luke. Luke 13 is where we are this morning. If this is your first Sunday here, we are studying the Gospel of Luke and just going through it thought by thought, chapter by chapter, and we have started here in uh, chapter 13. And uh, you will see in your bulletin a place you can take notes as well. And I am just, as you're getting settled, I'm just going to read the text we're going to study here this morning. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who had told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not... You can cut it down. Let's pray here. Father, thank You for the privilege we've had to be together so far to sing, to just hear about Your work in Eastern Europe and just to hear how great You are and to be able to sing of our desire to surrender all. I pray, Lord, that flowing out of the words of that song, we would now uh, take that to this text. Let it shape our hearts and our thoughts and our minds and just cause us to love You and to love others and to set aside all the selfishness that rules and battles in our hearts. May we truly have a heart of the Gospel. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, it seems like every year or two years or so in life or in the world, there is some big national, natural disaster that comes upon the world. An earthquake, a hurricane, some huge event that, that takes place that, that, that kills thousands and, and, and just wreaks havoc and, and at, at times you know, hinders economic things. And, you know, it's just big things that happen. And, and because of the way our world is structured, we can now see them and we're more aware of those events as they take place. In fact, oftentimes events are taking place and we're getting live feeds or just within minutes, somebody's cell phone video of what had happened. And when that happens, it kind of pulls the whole world into the crisis for a given moment. And, uh, and the world responds. And usually when you look at crisis, you can see the amount of money that can be raised in 24 and 48 hours, millions of dollars to help solve that crisis. But then usually something will happen when this happens, and this is the part that sometimes grieves me, often, usually grieves me, is that 
oftentimes when this crisis is going on and the world is responding and money's being giving and given and all this stuff's happening and, and organizations are mobilizing to help people, some prominent religious leader will get on the TV and say, this is the judgment of God upon those people because they have done X, Y, and Z. And, you know, right? That happens. And then all of a sudden, the focus on the Christians is, is this the judgment of God? How could they say this? And on and on. Distracts the whole thing. And it always grieves me when that happens. Because somebody will say something, and they will pronounce a judgment upon someone else. God is judging you because of your sin. That's why this earthquake happened. That's why this tornado happened. That's why. Right? All of a sudden, all of Job's friends show up when a crisis happens. And they begin to interpret the moment like Job's friends. Oh, you must have done something to have deserved this. You must have done something. Now, is that the right answer? Is that what the church should be doing? By the fact that I'm bringing it up in the way I'm bringing it up, you can assume the answer is no, right? How, how should we respond? Now, as Christians, we are aware of what we would call the signs of the time. We, we are aware that things are happening. We are aware of what Jesus said in Matthew 24 about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and things like that. And, and we, do, we are very sensitive to those things. And we're not the only people that were sensitive to them. The people in Jesus' time were sensitive to them. This whole account that we're studying in, in chapter 13 is about some people who were aware of things that were going on in their culture. And they wanted Jesus to respond to this. They wanted Jesus to have a response. To, how are we going to deal with this? And, and how do we react to the sin that's going on in the world? What is going to be our response? What's the right answer? You know, as Christians, there are always three roads for us when we look at the world. There's always three roads. There's three paths that are paved on how we can engage and react to the world. The first path is that we can see the world as an enemy. We can see the world as our enemy. We can actually see that we can, we can see the fact that people don't love God out there. They hate God. They, they live to rebel against God. We love God. They hate us because we love God. Therefore, it's easy to say they're the enemy. And when an earthquake comes, it's easy to say, see, you're an enemy of God. He's judging you. Right? That's one path that's in front of us. There's another path that's in front of us. The other path is that some people react to that, and they go way over on the other side, this path that's going in this direction, that will say, well, no, hey, that's wrong. We don't want to call him the enemy. What we want to do is we want to embrace him. You see, Jesus is all about love, and therefore there really is no distinction. I'm just going to live like the world and embrace it, and, and it, you know, they're my friend. And in, in, in a way where suddenly the distinction between righteousness and sin gets blurred. And suddenly some react and they say, oh, I'm just going to become like the world. But you can't become like the world. Because we want to call people out of the world. And so that leads us down that third path that's cut down the middle, which is to engage the world with the love of Christ. This third road is a road of engagement. It's a road that says, listen, you're, you're not my enemy. But Christ, but, you, but, but, but there is a problem here. But Christ has solved that problem. And if you would embrace that resolution, there's peace, there's friendship, there's restoration. I want to engage you with the kingdom of God. Now, 
Jesus has been really wanting the disciples and all that hear Him and all that are His children to actually go out and engage the world with the kingdom of God. Now, if they're going to engage the world with the kingdom of God, they have to make sure of something. That their heart reaction to the world is the right heart reaction. There is sin in the world. How are we going to react to it? There are crises in the world, right? We live in a fallen body. We live around sinners. And we live in a decaying planet. And all kinds of stuff is happening. How are we to respond to these moments when we engage all levels of sin, whether it's a, the reality of a natural disaster or whether it's the reality of somebody who might offend you tomorrow morning? What is to be your response when that happens? How are we to respond when we engage sinners who are in rebellion towards God? How are we going to respond when we see a natural disaster kill thousands of people? What is the gospel heart response? And I want to just say it this way, what's the gospel heart response to the signs of the time? Not the political response, not me trying to interpret the newspaper through the book of Revelation, but instead, what is my heart response as a Christian to the world? That's what this text is about. And so what Jesus is doing in these nine verses is he's trying to show the people the wrong way to interpret the world and the right way to interpret the world. And this focus here is on a heart reaction. In fact, here's what I want you to catch today. The key to this thing is that we're going to look at the gospel and we're not going to look at the gospel from from its content about Jesus and the cross and justification and all of that. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the, the implication of the gospel on my heart reaction to the world. What I want to tell you is that Jesus is saying, if you don't have this heart reaction, you've missed it. So this isn't going to be a test on whether or not you can tell me the gospel. This is really a focus of whether or not your heart responds with a gospel heart. We're going to see that in these nine verses. Hopefully you'll see it. Let's hear, let's begin here. Let's look at the wrong way to interpret the world. Look at verse 1 with me again. He said, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now let's set the context. Jesus is making his way from Galilee down to Jerusalem. Got a fairly long walk ahead of him. He's got thousands of people around him. He's just given a very, very intense challenge to everybody. In chapter 12, lots of things that he said. He challenged people not to love the world, to trust that God's their provider, to live for the kingdom of God because your life and your prosperity and everything you need has all been settled in Christ. You are in a good place already. You don't have to worry. Live for the kingdom of God. He's told everybody, you've got to be able to read the signs of the time. You've got to be aware of what's going on around you and get things right with God now while you can. This is the context. In the course of this challenge of, of making sure they could read the signs of the time, I believe this comes up here in, um, in verse 1. They're walking down to, to, uh, to Jerusalem, and the Galileans said, Hey, Jesus, do you remember those Galileans that were killed by Pilate? Now, why are they asking him this question? Well, let's just set the context of, of what the event is they're talking about, and then we'll, I think we'll get, glean some insight as to why they asked the question. 
the, uh, the context is this. Pilate had a very tenuous relationship with the Jews. He's the governor of Judea at this point. And uh, at one point, Pilate decided that he wanted to contribute to the Roman aqueduct system. If you ever tour Europe, one of the tours you can take is all the Roman aqueducts that are everywhere. They're still standing today. Incredible engineering feats. And uh, Pilate wanted to join in the aqueduct craze that was going on among the different rulers, you know, and so he wanted to build an aqueduct and show off to the Roman government. So he says, I'm going to build this aqueduct. The problem is he didn't have all the money necessary to build the aqueduct. He needed money. So he went sniffing around for cash, and he found some in the temple. See, the Jews, they had this practice similar to to, uh, our taxation system today. They had a practice called Corban. Corban was this. Everybody was required to pay certain percentages of their money, certain tithes. You could read through it in Leviticus, the tithing system that was set up. But there was one extra thing you could do. If you wanted to, you could take money in addition to all that that was tithed, and you could set it aside for temple use. What that would mean is that your kids couldn't get it when you died. Okay? So you could just take a chunk of your change and say, listen, they're not getting this inheritance. When I die, this inheritance is going into the temple. I don't want my kids to have it. And so oftentimes they would use it to spite their kids, unfortunately, and not provide for them. But, but anyways, they, they, this money, large sums of money, were in the temple treasury that was set aside on this Corban use, which means it wasn't the undesignated cash. And so the temple had this cash. Pilate goes in, raids the temple, takes that money out, starts building the aqueduct. This angered a lot of people. It angered a lot of Galileans, specifically. And so there was a revolt at one point. The Galileans had gathered to protest. And uh, Pilate then sent his soldiers out there. Basically, they, he had them take their, 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 their fighting clothes off, their uniforms off, had them dress up like they were just peasants but they had swords underneath their robes and they mingled among the protesters and then a command was given and they just wiped them all out. It was really bloody, horrible thing. Galileans got angry about this, so there was this tension that was brewing. Now, a little bit more you need to know about this tension. Sorry, long setup here for this one verse, right? This tension was pretty strong. Now, Pilate knew one thing. If he didn't keep peace in his region, he would be executed. The Romans held to the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This is what drove Pilate to actually have Jesus crucified. He was afraid of any kind of revolt. If his country did revolt, he would be killed. So, one particular day, a bunch of Galileans. Now we're down to this story. That's the setup. We're down to this account. A bunch of Galileans go down as to make a pilgrimage to the temple. They're gathering in the temple. Pilate says, "Uh uh-oh, we got a whole bunch of Galileans in the temple worshiping. They're going to revolt because of the aqueduct. So he sent in his soldiers and just killed them all. Just killed them all. They weren't there to revolt. They were there actually to worship. But he killed them all. It'd be the equivalent of all of us gathering for candlelight Christmas Eve service and the army coming in and just killing us right there. It's that kind of intensity. This was a big moment because obviously you have the injustice of Pilate killing all of these 
these, these Galileans who were worshiping. But then you had the, uh, the, the sacrilegious moment because you see they were there in the temple. They're killing, sacrificing these animals. And they would have the blood of the animals go down this little drain. And that blood was seen as like sacred, holy, given to the Lord. And when Pilate had killed all those Galileans, their human, unholy blood mixed with that righteous blood of the animals. And, they, and, it, and it profaned, in their eyes, the temple. And so this was a, a moment where, where religiously they were offended and politically they were offended and, and, and on all levels offended as human beings and everything. It was just a bad moment. So they're walking along. And, Jesus, and, and as they're making their way, now think about this, there are a bunch of, there's about a thousand or so Galileans with Jesus making their way down to Jerusalem. Jesus had just told them at the end of chapter 12, read the signs, know the signs of the time. Just told them this. They're making their way down, and they say, hey Jesus, you remember what happened? Remember what Pilate did? How should we respond to this? Right? The moment. Right? It's a huge moment. And Jesus wants them to respond correctly to this. Now, we don't, we don't know. The text doesn't set up what their problem is. But Jesus will help us understand what their problem is. Because what Jesus is going to do is he's going to ask them a question. And here's a little Bible study tip. Whenever Jesus asks someone a question... He's always revealing their heart. You can always look at the questions of Jesus and the way the stories unfold. And every question He asks, He's showing you the heart of the person who's talking to Him. So He's going to ask a question and we're going to get the understanding of their heart. So this is a a political moment. How should they respond? They believe they're heading down to Jerusalem with their Messiah. Is Jesus going to go and whoop up on Pilate, the Roman soldiers? Is this going to be the moment when everything is set? What's going on? How do we interpret the moment? So what Jesus is going to do now is he's going to actually move past the politics of this situation. He's going to move past the offense of the situation. And he's going to get right down to the heart of the questioner. So he's not going to respond politically. He's not going to respond religiously. He's actually going to respond to the heart of the questioners. And this is the key to understanding Jesus and everything he's saying here. Look at verse 2. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? What's the heart of that question? The heart of this question is, God brought this hurricane to this land because those people practiced voodoo. See, they're sinners and they deserved it. What's he getting at? He's getting at the very heart that we have when we see a crisis befalling someone and we think that they brought it on themselves. A judgmental heart. You see, we think that God operates, our flesh thinks that God operates solely on a quid pro quo basis. What does quid pro quo mean? It means this for that. It's Latin, this for that. 
Right? I buy you lunch tomorrow, you buy me lunch on Tuesday. This for that. And so, since we have Galatians that tells us that you reap what you sow, therefore, God must always work on a quid pro quo basis, which means that if all those Galileans died in the temple, they must have done something to deserve having that happen to them. Now think about that statement. They must have done something to deserve having that happen to them. Now think about that statement from the person who would actually make that statement. What's the implication of that statement? The implication of that statement is that since I'm alive and I didn't die that way, I must have not done something as bad as them. Right? I'm not as bad as them because I'm alive. They died because they did horrendous things. I certainly haven't done enough horrendous things to justify being killed that way. Now, would you actually say that? Would the religious leader go on the television and say, I am way more righteous than they are. That's why I'm alive and they're dead. But Jesus is in essence saying, that's what you think. You think they're worse sinners. Let's cut through the politics. Let's cut through whether that we're a thousand people making our way down to Jerusalem. Let's cut through the horrendous nature of this. I want to actually peer right into your heart. You think they deserved it. That's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the motive of your heart. Some of you who were alive, saddens me to have to say this, in 1994, (laughs) this seems like yesterday to me, but some of you weren't even born then. In 1994, there was a big earthquake in Los Angeles. Remember that? It was really, really bad. And, uh, and I remember so many people saying, oh, that's the judgment of God on the porn industry and on, you know, all of this. And, you know, and, and it's funny because if it was the judgment of God on the porn industry, God really failed with his judgment because there's still porn, right? I mean, I believe if he was going to judge porn, it'd be gone. There'd be no more porn, right? So, so he really failed if that's what he did. But all of those thoughts on that make you think, well, you see, they deserve that because they're worse sinners than me because look what they do. Jesus is saying the moment you start thinking that, you are not actually walking by faith in the grace of God. You're actually walking by works. Because you think you're better. That's what he's getting at. And that's true on all of sin, by the way. That is true whether or not you're living surrounded by unsaved people or whether or not we're dealing with a natural disaster, whatever it is, the moment we start pointing the finger, you, what are we saying? I'm better than you. That's what he's getting at. So this is why he goes right to the heart of it. He says, I don't want you to react to the world this way. Here's how I want you to react. Look at verse 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When you look at this moment, you shouldn't say, wow, they did something to deserve that. You should look at this moment and say, God, I'm a sinner. I deserve to be killed. That should be your response. The crisis should evoke humility out of you. Not judgment. See, the gospel heart has to back up the gospel message. I cannot preach faith in Christ and it's by grace alone, by faith alone, but by the way, I'm better than you. 
I can't live that way. The heart has to reflect it. This is what he's getting at. He's going to unpack this in greater ways further. But here's the key. The key to understanding how to read all of the signs of the time, how to interpret the sin that goes on around you, is to realize that if you look at an event and it does not remind you of your sin and the fact that you're standing in grace, you don't understand the Gospel. If it doesn't bring you there, and I will tell you this, if, if we miss this, and we struggle with this, but if we miss this, and we start to go down the road that these people were going down in Jesus' time, then we will always see the world as the enemy, and we will never engage Him with the Gospel. We will never live the Gospel out. We'll never be part of the great rescue mission God has in pulling people out of darkness and bringing them into light. We will instead just be judgmental. We'll roll our eyes. We'll cocoon ourselves into a nice little cocoon and miss it. But the saddest part about the whole thing is that a person thinks they're standing up for holiness when in reality they're standing up for their own pride. They're not being holy. They're not standing up for the righteousness of God. They're not. They're missing the righteousness of God. So when we had that shooting at NIU a few years ago, and those people came out and said, see, God's judging NIU because of all the immorality on the campus. They thought that they were holding high the holiness of God. They thought they were going to hold up the banner that God is so holy that He judges sin. But what did they do? They were actually saying, you see, I don't deserve it. You do. How can you bring the Gospel with that? When I stand there and say, I deserve it. I deserve to be facing the wrath of God. I don't deserve anything I have. All that I have is because of Christ and His grace. If that heart doesn't follow the words, then it's pride. This is why Jesus goes right to the heart of it. And so, He illustrates His point. Let's keep going here. Look at verse 4. He illustrates this. He says, Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? I was referring to some building thing that was going on. No one really quite knows what it is. Lots of speculation. It doesn't really matter. Because the point is, there were a bunch of people who were building a tower. The, the tower fell. It killed them. And what was the reaction? He's saying, your fleshly, your heart reaction is, they must have done something to deserve it. You had a, heart, a hard heart towards them. You didn't have a heart of compassion and a heart of, of gratefulness of God's grace. You just looked and said, well, that's what happens, you know? You live that way, you live in the world, you're going to pay for it, right? You know? You've got to be willing to do the time if you're going to do the crime, you know? Just that kind of hard-hearted, dismissive attitude. He's saying, it's wrong. Look at verse 5. He repeats himself. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Do you realize you're just as equal a sinner as they were? And the fact that you weren't killed at that moment does not mean you're better just means God's gracious right now. Equal plane. He's he's equalizing it, right? Because what can happen? What can happen is that I can get lulled into a sense of of security because I don't participate externally in the the deeds of darkness. I, I don't participate externally in them. So because I don't 
do those things or go those places or participate, I can begin to think that I don't really need grace. I'm a good person. That every breath that I take is, is, is not a gift from God. It's, it's, you know, I deserve it. It's, and, I'm, and we're always a hair's breath from being there, right? Always a hair's breath. This is why he's going after. So here's what I think he's saying. He's telling them basically three things. He's saying, when you see a tragedy like this, see this kind of thing happen in front of you, there should be three responses, I think, that we should pull from this. The first response is that we should remember the holiness of God. Right? He isn't taking away that God is uh, not a powerful God. He's not saying God isn't going to judge. He's not saying that, that, you know, this could be somebody reaping what they sell. Who knows? But there is a sense in that warning when he says, hey, you need to repent or you'll perish. He's saying, listen, remember, God is holy. God is holy. Remember that. But don't, the second thing, don't apply it to other people. Apply it to yourself. God is holy and you need His grace. That's what you need. You need His grace. And so it should cause me, when that that event happens, if a tragedy happens tomorrow, I should take a stock in my own life and say, God, have I loved this world? Have I feared this world? Have I not stood up for what's right? God, You're holy, and I want to use this moment to have you examine my heart. And then the third response it should make us do is stand in love and embrace grace and mercy. That I'm here because of His grace. I'm here because of His mercy. And I think if we get to this point, as Jesus is is going to commission His disciples, He wants to commission them to have a heart of the Gospel. Not a heart where they become co-judge with Jesus. Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. He does pronounce consequences on people. Sometimes people do reap what they sow, but that is all up to Him. I am not deputy judge. I'm not magistrate in the kingdom of God. And so, when I see those events, He's saying, turn inward. Look at yourself, stand in grace. So the wrong way to interpret the world is to look at these events and just assume that you're distant from the sin of the people on the other side. That there's a, there's a wall of separation between the two of you. It's the wrong way to do it. So what's the right way? Let's look at the right way to interpret it. Let's just look at these last few verses here together. Verses 6 through 9. He said, And he told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and, and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. There is a lot in that little parable there. There's layers and layers of things. Let me give you just a couple of them. The first layer is, uh, we can look at this from the context of just Israel itself. A couple things I want you to notice in there. First is you have a fig tree. In both Hosea and the book of Joel, both of those books, 
the leadership of Israel are likened to fig trees. So that is one of the illustrations God used to describe the leadership of Israel in the prophets. Called them fig trees. And so Jesus is now referencing fig trees in this parable, which probably would have gotten some people's attention. A known illustration, a known picture of the leadership of Israel. Second thing, notice that in the story, the vine dresser, he says, look, for three years now, we're actually close to the end of the third year of Jesus' ministry on earth here. So I think there's some kind of connection point to Jesus' ministry. For three years I've been coming, and I've been talking to the leadership of Israel. I think this is one layer of the conversation here. And they have not repented. They have not heard these words, and it has not softened their heart. And I think there's a warning in this passage. And the warning to the leadership of Israel is, this will not go on indefinitely. You have a little window of time. But when that time is up, it's up. So he's calling upon them to repent. So I think there's a a national side to this. But obviously Jesus knew when he was speaking these words, and the Spirit knew when Luke was recording these words, that these words would carry themselves beyond Israel. And that warning to those leaders is just as true for us today. And the warning is this, that God wants us to bear the fruit of the kingdom. What's the fruit of the kingdom? Repentance and faith. An attitude that says, I am not worthy, God, but I trust in Christ who was worthy. And I'm walking every day out of that heart. Out of that heart. The moment the heart becomes arrogant, dismissive, judgmental, it's the wrong heart. It's not a gospel heart. And Jesus would say, take stock. Make sure you have true faith. If you haven't gotten there, if your heart isn't broken by this, if you're not looking and standing in grace and letting it evoke in you a heart of repentance, then do not take comfort in your goodness. Do not take comfort. See, the point of this is not to look at the tragedies of the world as a sign of others' sinfulness, but as a warning that judgment's coming to all men. Are you ready? That's what he's saying. Now, if we miss this heart, I believe four things will happen. Let me give you the four things I think will happen. I think if we miss this heart and, and we, we don't really take stock that we're standing in grace every day, if we miss that heart, we can start, we will develop, we will, this is guaranteed, we will develop a judgmental attitude. We will become judgmental towards others. We'll know it because we'll start having a condemning heart towards all the sinners in the world. Look at them. They're so horrible. They're so wretched. Look what goes on over there. We just get judgmental. Look, what are they doing in Washington? You know, just judgmental spirit. Judgmental heart, attitude. And then you know what happens? When a judgmental attitude takes over, it leads to the next thing. Once you get a judgmental attitude, you get a condemning spirit. They are so bad over there. They are so bad. Now, I've got a condemning spirit. I've condemned someone. What happens when you have a condemning spirit? You get a dismissive mind is the next step. A dismissive mind. What happens in a dismissive mind? Whatever. I'm done with them. Right? Now, you're not engaging anymore. Right? You've just dismissed them. And then once you have a dismissive mind, you know what happens? You get a distant heart. You stop caring. You don't care. The only thing you care about is yourself and your sphere. That's it. 
and protecting your sphere from all those evil people over there. All those wretched evil people. Jesus is saying, that's not why I left you here. (laughs) I didn't leave you here to have a judgmental attitude, a condemning spirit, a dismissive mind, and a distant heart. I didn't leave you here for that. I left you here to be on a rescue mission because I'm saving thousands of people out of that garbage. And I'm bringing them to heaven. And I want you there with me. That's why you're here. That's the passion. But you're never going to get it if, when that event happens, you point the finger. You, you, you. Sinner sins around you. Oh, they're so horrible. They're sinners. They're not saved. I have this unsaved brother. He's just so horrible. Right? Instead of saying, man, I'm worse. But by the grace of God, I would be worse. I would have been a worse heretic. I would have been a worse this. I would have been a worse that. I remember one time this guy came up to me many years ago. And he was complaining about a particular Christian author. It was a book this author had written. And he was just complaining. But he wasn't complaining about the book. That would have been one thing, just to talk about the ideas in the book. He's actually complaining about the author. How could this guy call himself a Christian? How, does he really think he's going to heaven? You know, just going after the guy. And, you know, I have, like, some level of uh, what I would call, like, relational tolerance, endurance. I can handle that for a little while, but after a while, it just starts to get on me. And so I finally said, so what did this guy say to you when you told him all these things? And, of course, he's quiet. I can't talk to him. He's a popular author. There's no way. I'm like, you mean to tell me you didn't talk to him about it? Isn't that what Matthew 18 would say? Go to your brother? He's in sin? Well, how, how could I talk to him about it? I said, I got another question for you. Do you want this guy in heaven or hell? Where do you want him? Heaven or hell? I mean, if you want him in hell, just say so. Then keep it up. If you want him in heaven, how should you respond? Right? Where do we want this guy? Yeah, the book was a bad book. I'll give him that. It's a bad book. I read it. It was a bad book. This guy's theology is all messed up. But by the grace of God, I would have been a worse heretic. Right? I would have been, you, if you would have known me in high school, you would not have ever picked me to be standing up here talking to you. Okay? There is no way. If you would have known me at 21 and the theology I had at 21, yeah, you know, I'm glad there weren't a lot of cell phones and things recorded back then. Right? But by the grace of God, I stand here. How in the world, if I want this guy in heaven, would I just sit there and rip him? Now, his response to me, he got upset with me. And so he said, well, the Bible says, separate yourself from the heretic. To which I quickly retorted, how do you know he's a heretic? Have you talked to him? You are making all of this distant because you've got a judgmental attitude. You're just judging this guy and judging this guy and judging this guy. You're missing it. You're missing it. When you read his book, it should have a response in you by saying, oh my Lord, please have the same mercy on him that you've had on me. And if you'd open the door for me to talk to him, I would love to talk to him. I don't want to see this guy in hell. I want to see him in heaven. You see, 
But by your grace, I would be in hell. But by your grace, I would be there. God, give me that sandwich. See, what, this is what Jesus is getting at. Don't go down this road. This was the problem of the Pharisees, was it not? This is why the parable is structured the way that it's structured. They had a lot of things accurate, but they didn't have the heart of God. And the heart of God is humility. The heart of God is the recognition that we stand in grace, not law. Because I've never written a book that bad and published it and had millions of people buy it, doesn't mean that I'm not standing in grace. I am standing in grace. So, how do we wrap this up? What do we do with this? The heart of the Gospel must drive the message of the Gospel. That's what this is about. The heart of God has to drive the truth of God. And that heart of God has to take up root in our life where we have to really engage the grace and mercy of God. If I look at somebody who's practicing sin in a way that I'm not practicing sin, if at any moment I think that I need any less grace than them, I've missed it. I've missed the whole point. I've missed it. I I needed Christ's death just as much as they needed Christ's death. There's nothing I bring to this conversation other than faith in the one who saves me. That's it. If that message doesn't, doesn't, doesn't touch my heart, then I can't preach it and proclaim it. And I'm in danger of maybe not even being part of the kingdom. That's the warning of Jesus. Check your heart. So, some take-home points. Just I've already said these a few minutes ago, but I want to just kind of re- remind you of them. Some things to think about. When we see a crisis, or when we engage someone who sins, or when someone sins against us, or an earthquake happens, or whatever... Any time we're engaging the sin of this world at whatever level, whether it's a natural disaster or whether it's it's someone who's in your own family, whatever it is, three responses should come. First, it should always cause me to remember the holiness of God. I, I can't lose sight of that. God is holy. God is holy. But second, it should cause me to look at my life and ask, You are holy. God, do I love this world? Am I taking pride in myself? Right? Am I loving this world? Am I fearing this world? Am I living for myself? If I'm living for myself, I'm no different. Right? You're no different. You need grace. In fact, you can think about it this way. If you are in Christ and you're engaging somebody who's not in Christ, the only difference for you is that you have the grace of God upon you in full right now and they don't. They're standing in grace because God's allowing them to breathe. Other than the grace of God, zero difference. If that doesn't rule your heart, you will never be on mission and you will always see sinners as the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're those whom Christ died to rescue. And He's left you here to be part of that rescue mission. So third thing, it should make us love the grace and mercy of God. Right? When, a, when, when a crisis, the next crisis that happens, if I can go through that process and I recognize I stand in grace, I'm ready now to be usable. But remember the warning of Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you don't take this seriously, you don't catch this, 
You've missed the most important thing. You bow your head with me. Let's just pray now and, uh, and seek the Lord together because our effectiveness in the kingdom is predicated on this gospel heart. And let's just take a moment and maybe just review in our own hearts the very judgmental attitude that can take over in us and bring that before the Lord. Let's just pray about this. God, come before You this, this morning just with a, a desire to bring our hearts to You. We all have a judgmental attitude and it's easy for us to forget that we stand in grace. It's easy for us to begin to react to people and to situations. It's easy for my flesh when somebody tosses the name out of somebody that I don't agree with for me to roll my eyes, speak in a condescending manner. To act as if I'm content that those people are, are in their error. And it's easy to get there, to get angry towards them. Lord, I pray that instead we'd have the attitude of Christ that says, when you see that, go inside. It's a good reminder that you too struggle, that I struggle. May we take these moments to remind ourselves so that we might stand in grace so that we might proclaim that grace. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have preached grace with a heart of the law. Humble our hearts, God, that we might walk with eyes just in awe and abandonment towards You. Thank You, God, for Your grace as we learn how to do this. Thank You for the grace that You will extend to us this week when we fail. But Lord, May Your Spirit remind us of the truth of Your Word this week that we might walk with humility towards one another and not law. Give us a heart of forgiveness and mercy. In Christ's name, Amen.